October 16, 2020. Samuel Patti, a 47-year-old French middle school history teacher, is walking home after a long day at work. One week earlier, he had shown two cartoons in class depicting the Prophet Muhammad as part of a lesson on free speech and expression. Monsieur Patti, a well-respected educator, had been conducting a unit on civil liberties as part of the official French curriculum and allowed his Muslim students to leave the room beforehand as the content was offensive to Muslims. While the Quran never explicitly prohibits the depiction of figures sacred to Islam, several hadiths, or accounts of Muhammad's sayings, do discourage it as idolatry. <clears throat> Suddenly, Mr. Pati is seized by the neck, walking home, and decapitated. His assailant, Abdullah Anzorov, an 18-year-old Muslim from Chechnya. After the brutal crime, Anzorov posted a picture of Pati's head on social media with the caption, I have executed one of your hellhounds, Macron. The atrocity has thrown France into a republican fervor. Thousands assembled at the Place de la République in the center of Paris wearing masks that read Je suis prof or Je suis Samuel. The government began an immediate crackdown on Muslim organizations throughout the nation and President Macron condemned radical Islam and praised Pati as an embodiment of the republic in a memorial at the Sorbonne. Many far-right uh, commentators, such as uh, Marine Le Pen, have taken the opportunity to call for a cleansing of France, while Muslim activists condemn the undue demonization of the Muslim faith due to the actions of an extremist. In the past week, a string of horrific attacks have followed, including a stabbing that killed three in a church in Nice, France. Uh, France, as well as many nations around the world, have long struggled with attacks by religious fundamentalists. The Charlie Hebdo attacks, the Paris bombings, and various other incidents have killed collectively nearly 300 people in the country in the past five years. The problem is certainly not limited to Islamic extremists. The Christchurch shooting, which killed 51 Muslims in New Zealand, was partially motivated by an extremist vision of Christianity. 148 Muslim headstones in a national military cemetery were defaced with feces and anti-Islamic slurs recently. And also in France, uh, Claude Cinquet opened fire on a mosque, killing two and tried to burn it down, claiming he was a soldier of the Pope. Clearly, religious fundamentalism and the violence it promotes presents a great threat to every value we hold dear. So, the big question. How do we confront and prevent religiously motivated attacks? Anybody wish to open the floor? Hello? I think it's a tradition Hello. that you ought to do it, Harry G. Um, alright, yeah, um, okay. <clears throat> Give me a second, let me drink some water. Yeah, all right. All right. So I think there has been a rush to criticize uh, every element of these attacks. And I think this it has to be mentioned that while, yes, Islam did play a role or Christianity or just religious fundamentalism, religion does not simply exist in a void. And to simply dismiss someone's actions as purely religious ignores the fact that the, the, the kind of people who would resort to these attacks are not people who are, well, okay, you can be a devout Muslim, a devout Christian, a devout anyone, um, without resorting to that to those that kind of violence. So I think this rush, and it's for political gain, especially when you look at, say, for example, Le Pen and the French right, they have been playing on xenophobia and anti-Muslim bias for decades, really. I mean, it goes all the way back to even before, you know, in the 50s with Algeria, and the idea that there were certain concerns that if they, Algeria made part of France, then, quote-unquote, France wouldn't be France anymore. So I think it's a little naive to, uh, to look at the, you know, the emphasis, especially when it comes to uh, terrorism by Muslims, the emphasis on Islam as a religion has to be noted as something that can be, that there can be a lot gained from it. But it's a rather narrow lens through which to view the situation. Overwhelmingly, terrorists are people who are in desperate situations, they've grown up in violent areas, and they are often not particularly wealthy. And I think we have to ra it raises the question that, you know, there are a lot, there's a lot more at play than religion. And I think that this, this is a key distinction to draw, is that, you know, uh, the man who killed Pati was from Chechnya. Chechnya is not exactly a stable place, and it has a long history of violence. And this kind of environment kind of, it, it, it sort of encourages this kind of behavior from people. So it's, again, I emphasize that the, dealing with religious extremism should be seen as dealing with any kind of extremism. Yes, religion plays a role, but to simply focus in on the religious part of it ignores the reality that most of these people are not driven purely by religion, but by desperation, by a desire to be part of something bigger, which religious extremism can fill that void 
but we're being narrow-minded if we simply say, well, it's just religion, because the truth is that it's not. I think I agree with that sentiment. The problem here is not with the religion of Islam. It is with extremists who have distorted its uh, vision for a cause to make themselves feel important. And certainly the Chechnya region is very special in that um, its leader, a Russian puppet, is a mufti. It is, he is a theoretically a Islamic authority who has uh, iterated in extremely um, aggressive language that there must be a jihad of sorts against the uh, uh, Western powers, which obviously Russia tries to encourage. I th it is essentially state-sponsored, um, a, a state-sponsored call to terrorism. And this, uh, this uh, young adult was clearly inspired by such words to undertake such horrific actions and uh, was rather radicalized uh, as part of the Syrian civil war, which uh, bloomed into sort of a training ground for militants. I agree with both of the previous points, and I also point out that a big issue here is assimilation, or not assimilation, perhaps integration, is the failure of France to integrate a lot of its Muslim population into society, which leads them feeling isolated and naturally leads to instances like this. And I would say that we have to consider France's policy towards uh, the, the Islamic faith, especially with laicite and the ban on burkinis a couple of years back. I don't think that's really productive to cultivating, because on one hand, they want these Muslims to become French. They want these Muslims to become French citizens. But on the other hand, they're also suppressing aspects of their religious expression. And here we have a great, no, it's a great example. I would like to bring up. Oh, go ahead, Mohammed. Okay, so what I've seen in the United States, especially, is that you know most, I would say most Muslims, they, you know, they oppose any sort of uh, violent extremist behavior uh, in the name of Islam, right? But some, I think Pew Research did like a poll like a few years ago, something around seventy-six percent of Muslims oppose uh, violent extremist, you know, uh, extremist acts in the name of Islam, right? That's still not good, in my opinion, right? Um, because that's still saying a quarter um, may look upon extremism, you know, favorably, or they may not have as strict, you know, views about, oh, maybe this uh, extremist acts are somewhat justified. And in the United States and in France and many other uh, Western countries, there are a minority of preachers who actually preach, hey, West is bad, uh, USA is killing Muslims, we have to take action, uh, and they, you know, quasi-support, you know, what Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other fundamentalist groups have been doing. It's actually a serious, I think, failing on the part of the Muslim community. I'm saying is, you know, as a Muslim, there's actually, there's a group, large group of people who aren't, a large group of Muslims who aren't opposing these, uh, you know, violent acts that are totally un-Islamic. There's nothing in the Quran, nothing in any hadith that says go out and kill people because, you know, they belong to a different faith or did something against uh, your faith. There's nothing against that. And then, as, as on your points about France and, you know, the secular culture there, I believe that France should be doing a better job as well uh, in integrating the Muslim population and in general in integrating other uh, groups of people. In France, there's a, you know, there's still a large amount of discrimination against uh, against black people, against uh, Arabs, against Muslims, etc. And they, I think France, uh, yeah, they should be working on that. It's interesting to I mention... A special thing about France here is its power, uh, it's its policy of uh, laicite, which is a uh, perhaps unique in the world for its degree of secularism. Um, it is a some have described it as an activist secularism, in which um, uh, the nation is held to be above any individual religion or any individual group ties, um, an active rejection of religious ties. In fact, in the service of, the, of la République. And that has led to a certain culture where um, religion is uh, forced to be relegated to the private household instead of being encouraged to do so. I would like to bring this up because I think that, you know, as Jason and Muhammad both bring it up, that this is a very interesting place and in that it's a sort of an intersection of two very critical parts of what I think we can generally call French culture. One is the anti-clericalism and secularism, and the laissez-faire, that sort of very active anti-secularism, which comes from the fact that around the turn of the 20th century, 
um, the Third Republic, which was the democratic government of France, was facing fierce opposition from the Catholic Church, which supported a monarchy. And so what was created was this viscerally anti, you know, anti-clerical, you know, it was against the clergy, to the point where other European nations would lodge protests with how many how many priests were deported. And so France's, especially Republican France's, relationship with religion has always been at best confrontational and at worst outright hostile. I mean, there's a very infamous act in which, you know, there were literally churches shut down because they preached against the Republic. So this anti-clericalism has extended in many ways beyond Catholicism and, and what was essentially, what was created as sort of a defense mechanism against an anti-Republican church extended to pretty much all religions. And this kind of Republican suspicion of religion has been a core part of French culture pretty much ever since. And the other area that I think it intersects with is this fundamental colonialist, imperialist perspective of sort of creating real Frenchmen. Uh, there's a very famous quote uh, by, I think it was Marie Soro, who was the governor of Indochina back in the early 1900s. And he said... Um, the only way the Vietnamese can be civilized is when they are yellow Frenchmen. And this idea that to be French, you have to basically just be a white French person, but your skin's a slightly different color. And this sort of very, this idea of civilizing people who don't fit into the, you know, hegemonic group has very much intersected with that very anti-clerical uh, perspective and sort of they they feed on each other right because the idea of the French are like oh these people are so devoted to their religion which means they need to be quote-unquote fixed and this need to fix them means that they're you know this feeds the anti-clericalism because they can't be fixed if they still believe if they are still very loyal to the church or well not the church but any religion in general and I think this is an important point to recognize is that even you know on the far right elements that we might even consider to be not republican channel this fundamental fear of sort of a powerful church in combination with this sort of imperialist xenophobic idea of, you know, our culture being the highest and the most important, and it creates a very powerful combination that not only ostracizes minorities, but feeds that kind of, you know, that natural part of a nation of that kind of ego of thinking that they are the best. I think we have yeah, all general... Oh, sorry. What laicite is all about is being French and only being French. You can't be Muslim, you can't be Catholic, you just have to be French. And I think naturally that's an impossible choice for french muslims to choose between their national identity and their religious identity um harry or general notice speak up a little bit more you're still coming a little quiet okay uh, All right. i'm not sure if this was mentioned already but uh, because my audio kind of cut out for a few minutes but uh in the united states right you can be like african-american right you can be like asian-american but you can't be like uh but in france that's not the same thing right you have to be like french right there is no like you're supposed to just be French, which is, I think, very interesting. Right. And I it's think... It's true to a certain extent. Yeah, there are I mean, I'm not there... sure I would uphold the United States as a particular model of uh, acceptance, especially with the African American. No, no, but it... no, no, no. You know, I'm sorry. And I didn't mean that, but I would say that in France, it's noticeably different from how... Oh, you're right. Uh, I mean, there's a certain space of American culture that is devoted to minority groups. That French culture, especially with how hetero... You know, sort of how... Um, not how homogeneous it has been overall, especially compared to the U.S., has created this sort of situation in which there's not really, quote-unquote, cultural space for the conception of people who are French but are also Muslim, people who are French but also black, whereas in the U.S., there's a very specific identity that has been established, that is allowed to be established. Right. I think, uh, uh, I think we all agree at this point that, one, uh, the religion of Islam is not at fault here at all. Two, that... Um, uh, France's certain culture of secularism and the enforcement of homogenous identity may have partially led to radicalization. And three, that um, this problem may be caused by uh, French ostracization of its uh, immigrant members. Now, I think we need to move on uh, to our um, actual discussion topic of the night, which is how we can prevent such incidents from occurring in the future, now that we've identified the nature of the problem. Well, let's point one thing out, which is that uh, I believe it was Gallup who did the study of uh, Middle Easterners who said they, they showed they were completely receptive to the idea of democracy, but they were extremely anti-America because of American foreign policy. So the first step is to stop the bleeding where it's already been happening. The crimes of Western imperialism in the Middle East are, they're pretty, it's a pretty long list. And I think the point is that considering they are still going on right now, we should, the first thing we should do is stop that bleeding and hope that there may be some day when a mid generation of Middle Easterners don't fear American drones. And there is not a very real fear that this distant nation of America is, you know, not some shining city on a hill, but rather 
a murderer that kills your friends, your family. And I think this is an important part, is that the first part of any solution is to stop the process by which we very much ostracize, alienate, and radicalize populations by targeting them. Um, well, I certainly agree that we should stop the bombing of civilians in the Middle East. I do not think that is... Um, uh, Studies have repeatedly found that the cause of radicalization is not necessarily due to the American bombings. It was It's due to the horrific socioeconomic conditions there, which obviously are partially caused by the American bombings and interventions. But certainly, it's a lo much larger problem than just saying, gotta stop with the military interventions. Plus, the we have to take into account the active existence of groups like uh, Hamas or ISIS, which is still alive and well, despite the fact that it's most of its territory is now ceded. So onto onto that background, ISIS actually. You bring up you bring up the socioeconomic factors, but I think we should talk about stability, right? Look at where um, Islamic terrorist extremists have you know formed their power bases and where they've gone powerful, right? It's countries like Yemen, it's countries like Iraq, it's countries like Afghanistan, right? These countries are in shambles. They're weak. The governments have basically have very little control over you know the territory. They have little territorial sovereignty, right? So the main problem essentially is these groups are allowed to fester because there's just the governments are too weak. They can't do anything about, you know, uh, about these terrorists, right? The thing is most, the vast majority of people who are victims of like these terrorist groups are other Muslims. So most Muslims, especially in countries like Iraq, right, have a vested interest in getting rid of ISIS, right? Like most, most of the combatants fighting against ISIS were, you know, Muslims. They were either in the Iraqi army, paramilitary groups, right? They were in, um, they're in like the Syrian army, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think one big thing we can do is, you know, stop destabilizing countries that, that are prone to destabilization, right? And making sure that countries that are destabilized can, you know, if, if there is a possible way to do this, then make sure that they're, you know, back, get back to a level of stability. Right, but I think Mohammed's right, and I want to ask a question, Jason, because when from the way you worded your response to my statement about how we should stop buying, you seem to indicate that because there were forces like Hamas and ISIS, that we should that there was at least the implication that um, an American military presence should be maintained in the Middle East in some form or another. And I would like to say that if that was what you said, if that was in any way what you meant, that I don't really think the U.S. in the Middle East is you know a creator of stability. And I agree with Mohammed that fundamentally. The okay, truth is, Harry. we try to establish stability in the Middle East, and we fail. Harry, so the Harry, idea pause. that the idea that there is instability in the Middle East is not a is not a justification for keeping a destabilizing force I'd, in there. And pause. I in no way was meaning to suggest that the U.S. should be kept in there as a permanent presence. But then what did you mean? Because you explicitly said that there were dangerous groups in the Middle East. Oh, all, and... I, was, all I was all I was indicating all I was indicating is that the main destabilization factors present in the region are already there. Uh, that's not true. Okay, that's. That's I'm not sure you you a U.S. with a U.S. withdrawal would certainly be a net positive for the region, but I'm not sure what that would do to solve the problem. I'm not saying it's a panacea, but it would certainly be a step. I mean, allowing you, as Muhammad said, the vast majority of victims of these extremist groups are Muslims themselves, and so the idea that you know America is helping with that is not the case. So I think on a certain level we have to recognize the reality that we are not the tool to solve this issue. The extremism that is, you know, present in many of these countries is a complex issue that we simply have shown ourselves consistently incapable of understanding and dealing with. So, I just don't, I, I think that a withdrawal from the U.S., the U.S. is a primary destabilizing factor because ISIS emerged in the power vacuum created by the toppling of Saddam Hussein by U.S. intervention. So, even if there are destabilizing factors in the region now, without a total U.S. withdrawal, how can we ensure that there won't be more destabilizations, more power vacuums for a new ISIS to rise up? Okay, okay. I, th I think yeah. One, I, 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 I would I, I would like to pivot away from this point. One, I did not. I fully support the U.S. Uh -oh, withdrawal uh -oh. from the. It's Middle a East. Palestine moment. Oh my god! And two, we had a we had a helicopter moment. <laughs> and 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 two, and and two, and and and, and two. Obviously, um, I the subject of the discussion is more about the radicalization of native population. Uh, um, the the attackers in uh, the Paris uh, bombings, some of them were native uh, French citizens, uh, including in, in the case of Samuel Paty uh, recently. Um, the guy was a naturalized um, French, well, not necessarily a citizen, but certainly a permanent resident. So I was talking less about how to solve terrorism, which is a debate that could take us uh, literally decades and has taken many experts decades, and they still haven't 
came up with a solution. So the discussion is more about the radicalization of uh, youths and native populations than it is about terrorism worldwide. So that's relevant about. Okay, so if we're talking about radicalization of Muslims in like Western countries, right? That's it's pretty interesting, right? Because they're mo- yeah, mo- a lot of these terrorists aren't actually they've you know they've lived in Western countries for at least most of their lives, right? Like the you know, the person who killed Samuel Paty, he was from Chechnya, right? He, but he emigrated to France at, at a young age, I believe, right? So I think the real problem, and it's a real problem Muslim community has to face, is there are many you know many moms, many preachers that. Are actually they're very for um, you know like anti-Western they have they have very pro anti-Western sentiments essentially they're you know for uh, some of these horrific bombings they're for you know attacking U.S. soldiers abroad you know they hate Israel you know all of these things that you know they you know they so many of them even support you know uh, killing like Western civilians etc and actually this this is a big problem in the Muslim community and it has to be addressed at some point so well I think I there's think a right but there's a certain but, Problem. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I agree with you, Mohammed, to a certain point, but I feel like we have to recognize that there's a certain level on which there is kind of a reason for the Muslim community to sort of create this anti-Western sentiment. I mean, Israel oh, yeah, yeah. Is right. pursuing right. a policy, yeah. right? So I don't disagree, right? I think any de-radicalization process has to include the Muslim community, um, and there Harry, are certain uh, I'm gonna, I'm dangerous. gonna, I'm gonna ask you to speak a little slower for our listening audience. Okay. So I, I absolutely agree with Muhammad that there are certainly issues and certain elements that are simply not good. As in any group, there are more radical, more dangerous area, elements. Um, but I think what is important to remember is that a lot of this anti-Israel, anti-US, anti-West sentiment is not coming from a place of just, I really hate them for no reason, but because the crimes of the West against the Muslim community are real. And if we want to solve that problem, yes, Muslims must do work, but we must meet them in the middle. And the fact of the matter is that we have failed to comprehensively address anti-Muslim bias in Western countries. In fact, many right-leaning parties actively encouraged it. Um, and our and our foreign policy shows nothing but contempt for the Muslim community. So if we want Muslims to clean up their act, so to speak, we need to clean up our act too. Well, I, I, wouldn't, I, 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 I wouldn't put it in such strong language, but... Um... The general conclusion I'm, uh, what I would say is that it's not necessarily the fault of the Muslim community at all. I mean, it's essentially a, the actions of various rogue muftis who have come out and uh, issued various injunctions. It's, um, it is about as big as a problem as the Westboro Baptist coming out and saying that all, all gay people and everything that's good and light in the world is evil. It's, um... There, we will never be able to stop uh, random people from giving their uh, rather violent opinions on certain ma- subject matters. So that isn't really a path to solving. It, what we really need to do is stop people from being convinced and listening to those opinions. And I think a good way to start would be to provide greater social support um, to and certainly give more protections and rights to um, these disadvantaged communities currently living in those countries, whether it is mental health support, whether it is uh, shutting down various extremist organizations. Um, And I would like to point out this is certainly not limited to the Islamic faith, um, as we've seen with the uh, Charlottesville rallies, as we have seen with the horrific Christchurch bombings and various uh, far-right attacks, um, some uh, Christian-motivated as well, um, across the world. The problem is more that uh, there are disaffected people who have committed heinous crimes because of their exposure to radical ideology. I think we should also, well, yeah, I, I agree with you, Bill. Oh, go ahead, Harry. It's fine. Okay. I absolutely agree with you, Jason. I don't think it's the Muslim community's fault at large, but also I disagree with your characterization of it simply as some rogue muftis on par with the Westboro Baptist Church, because I think the reaction of some of the Arab and Muslim-majority countries' leaders after this incident has been very disturbing. To quote from, uh, from Mahathir, who was a, the former prime minister of Malaysia, Muslims have a right to be angry and kill millions of French for the massacres of the past, but by and large, the Muslims have not applied the eye for an eye law. Muslims don't, the French shouldn't. Since you have blamed all Muslims and the Muslims' religion for what was done by one angry person, the Muslims have a right to punish the French. 
And, uh, and what Erdogan has done during this crisis also speaks for itself. So obviously for these leaders, their geopolitical interests do not align with the West. So it's ex politically expedient for them to use this rhetoric. But this rhetoric is also heightening the divide between, as I mentioned before, the divide between having an identity as a Westerner and the identity as a Muslim. Well, I don't think those two things have to be fundamentally opposed. I think that there are... Uh, uh, no, I, uh, of course not. I'm just saying that the, the rhetoric used, like especially the policy of Leiste and the rhetoric of these leaders, uh, make it seem opposed. And yes. also, I would like to say that, like, uh, if we point out, the Westboro Baptist Church is not being supported by, like, I don't know, you know, Germany. It's not like Germany's coming out and being like, you know, what they said. And I think that's an important point, is that also, the Westboro Baptist Church is dangerous, sure, and they're bad. I, I genuinely think they are pretty awful. But there's a difference in that if you're a Baptist Christian, you're not ostracized. You're not told you're less than. You're not having laws passed about what clothes you can wear and what you can't. You don't see media in which, you know, one part of the political spectrum basically uses you as a political ploy in which candidates for the Republican Party say, we need a Muslim registry. And I think that's an important part is that there will be hateful elements of any religion. But that being said, how that religion is treated changes how seductive these elements are. If you're already disaffected and you're already desperate and you feel like society hates you, that kind of eye for an eye mentality of, well, they took it from me, I'm going to take from them, becomes far more important to people who, are, who feel trapped. Whereas many Christians, most Christians, since they are the hegemonic group in America, do not feel that same kind of pressure. If you say, I'm a Christian, you're not going to get sideways glances in most groups. Whereas if you say, I'm a Muslim, odds are there's at least one or two people there who are going to think less of you because of that. And I think it's really important that we recognize that um, on a certain level, the comparison of them to the Westboro Baptist Church ignores the fact that Baptists don't feel like they are constantly being attacked. No one's arguing for a Baptist registry. No one's saying we need to cleanse America of Baptists. And that's a really important distinction to draw. Well, yeah, I think that's certainly an important uh, note, but I think we need to get back to how to solve this problem because um, we could say right now, Islam, Islamophobia, uh, Islamophobia bad, get rid of it, but what can we actually do to combat Islamophobia and give more resources to Muslim communities, especially in uh, nations where there are large present uh, Muslim communities in France, in Spain, in, um, in Italy as well, uh, and especially in Germany. So I have a question. Are we going to expand this topic? Is it because, you know, uh, Islam in the West is a fascinating topic, right? And why um, Muslims in the, in the West get radicalized and then attack, you know, non-Muslims, it, it's a big part of, it's a big part of the problem. But most of the, you know, religiously motivated killings are not done in the West, right? They're done in the Middle East and Africa and in Asia, right? So are we going to also talk about that? Because I think, you know, that merits a discussion as well. Yeah, that was the discussion. That was the discussion where I wanted to turn the discussion, really, because I think um, Islam certainly is not the sole cause of <laughs> religiously motivated killings in the world, um, and certainly it's not limited to um, Western countries. We mostly hear about it through Western media because that's where we live, and because Western media is significantly more powerful, and Western stories get much more exposure. But um, one, the primary. Um, victim of uh, Islamic uh, of religiously motivated uh, fundamentalism um, and killings is in Africa and in the well, the Middle East is a rather outdated term in Western Asia. These are reasons where the very nature of the religious violence is not is fundamentally different than what we have seen in these countries. So, how do we combat um, these? Um, how shall I say it, uh, radicalization of people overall, not just limited to the Islamic faith. Improve people's lives. Simply put, people are going to be far more receptive to, uh, to extremist movements when their lives are bad, when they need to be part of something bigger. So yes, that includes increased social support, increased resource investment, not only in the Muslim community, but even indirect investment, say investment in African-American or poorer communities in general, means that there's simply more, if you improve the economy, there's already going to be more improvement. But social reforms as well can be a big part of how to improve people's lives, because simply put, People are going to be far more ra uh, prone to radicalization if they're put in a situation where their lives are not good. If they have very little, if, uh, if anything, to lose, they're going to be far more receptive to extreme ideologies. 
And with that in mind, I think the solution, especially in countries in the West where there are so many resources, the best way to address this is not to, you know, look at this and say, well, we need to do these very specific restricted things uh, surrounding only the Muslim community, but instead recognizing that Muslims are people who live in France, in America, and if something helps all American citizens, it will help Muslims too. And so good policy for the environment, for the economy, is good policy for Muslims as well. So I think that's one critical area is that in many ways, because of how these issues intersect and because of how the Muslim community is so intertwined with the countries it lives in, we don't need to limit ourselves to the scope of we only have policies that specifically, you know, increase education about Islam, right? We don't need to just limit ourselves to that because in many ways, this radicalization is not simply from is Muslims being specifically ostracized, but also from Muslims being in already bad situations, regardless of direct anti-Muslim prejudice. Instead, Muslim prejudice in things like hiring, which can obviously lead to lower employment, which leads people to having to be much more prone to radicalization. Right, but I would like to bring up a case, um, uh, especially in uh, Christian uh, 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 ext fundamentalism and extremism. Uh, for example, the Christchurch uh, shooting was. Uh, conducted by a young man who earned a stable wage and in New Zealand, a nation with one of the um, most um, progressive and most socially minded governments in the world. So how can we prevent those incidents? Because the economy is fine there. The man clearly had <clears throat> the man clearly had a certain degree of financial stability and a long career to look ahead of him. So how do we stop those people from turning into mass murderers. Well, I could go on a whole spiel about how certain elements of the system today are inherently unfulfilling to people, and how simply holding a job is not necessarily indicative of fulfillment. I mean, people will seek happiness, will seek a greater purpose, and so it's worth mentioning that in many ways, radicalization of especially communities that you wouldn't think would be radicalized, like the large number of white men, white heterosexual men in America, who have eagerly embraced increasingly far-right uh, ideologies, indi is indicative of the reality that in our modern world, we're simply not doing enough to fulfill people. And what ends up happening is that these people, um, well, they essentially decide that it's really, you know, Muslims' fault, immigrants' fault, brown people's fault, that they are unfulfilled, and they embrace this larger movement of people like them with a charismatic leader who says, you're not the problem, um, you, the reason you're unfulfilled is because people are keeping you down. And I think that's worth mentioning is that even among people who are supposedly doing well, when you have a society which can, uh, which encourages people to work extremely long hours, uh, oftentimes for lower pay than they should get, and the reality that on a certain level, there's an expectation that has been introduced by, you know, the decades of prosperity following the Second World War, that idea that you can get your job and live your middle class life, that has been increasingly exposed to be a lie to newer to younger generations and the corresponding rise of disaffection with the system has led to one of two areas we see a rise in advocate and advocacy for left leaning ideas certainly but also we see right leaning ideas and the critical difference is both agree both you know trump and a socialist would agree that society isn't fair to white men. But a socialist would say, but society is also unfair to everyone else, and it's a system, whereas Trump will more specifically blame groups of people. And I think that's an important distinction to draw, is that in many ways, even people who are supposedly well-off and seemingly stable, what they, you said he had a long, prosperous career to look forward to, but was he really looking forward to that? How much was there to look forward to for him if he was working an unfulfilling job? So it's worth mentioning that we have to address the reality that even superficial symbols of success are not necessarily replacements for a deep, fulfilling pursuit of a cause. I mean, yes, Mr. Zizek, while I agree with the fundamental sentiment there, <laughs> I, I, I think oh, that... Oh, are we shit talking my boy, Zizek? Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you watch a Zizek uh, interview, your IQ goes up by like a hundred. It's true. Uh, Zizek had... is the theory. The hot dog is praxis. Changed my mind. Uh, if you had spread that, I, it would have been a cap cake. Anyways, while mm, I well, oh, while... bringing the cap cake. That cap cake. This is the best explanation of why what? young men, disaffected people, grow, go grow up and become terrorists. Guys, this is this yeah. is we need a cap cake about terrorism. How capitalism creates terrorism. While we can certainly go on about this, and we could theoretically include in literally every one of our debates, starting off with the item, destroy capitalism, I think that's capitalism not exactly... Capitalism kind of cringe, not gonna lie. I think that's not necessarily the focus of our discussion here. 
what is what is uh, well, I mean, the the problem I here? There are a lot of unsatisfied men. Well, they, <laughs> let's let's use the word. Wow, Jason. Let's are let's you let, one of them? let's let, let's let's. Uh, let, let. Some men feel their their body pillows have not arrived on time. Some men just feel that this is unacceptable. Some okay. men have sent multiple consumer complaints to Amazon, and okay. these men have not gotten responses. Uh, okay, let, let's use the term. The unful- ruling class does not care about us. Okay, let, let's use the term unfulfilled instead. Um, what? Uh, but there I are plenty. Unsatisfied. But there are plenty of unfulfilled individuals who do not turn to terrorism. So I feel like the problem is here is more with the radicalization of um, people online and what that. Um, and I think we need to devise some kind of measure to. Uh, I think certainly without uh, we can couple uh, certain preventive measures regarding this very specific issue with overall societal change. That will be more more effective combination. So but let's I, wait, let's wait, talk. Wait, that's like two very. There's two different things. There's radical preachers in the Muslim community and a general ostracization of Muslim people in Western countries and edgy white boys who like video games getting increasingly falling down the alt right rabbit hole. Those are two very different things, and I think you have to recognize that in many ways there's a very different way that people fall into these situations because the reality is white men, the alt right is which is a an example of extremism, is you know in a certain form not really it's not really a religion first of all and second of all they uh, these people approach their radicalization at a very different angle because they are the head they are head, the hegemonic group right i mean they look at it like i was promised something as a white man growing up in america i was promised to be given a good job and i wasn't and yeah, why but, wasn't i but, but I that's not the same thing as the muslim that, community but i think the important thing is that they view themselves as having lost that you know, hegemonic states. They see themselves becoming increasingly marginalized. That's that's. I think that's the main difference. Well, Muslims in, in like the West, many of them, you know, just feel disrespected. They feel disenfranchised. They feel, oh, you know, everyone else is, you know, judging me. They, you know, they don't see me as equal. They don't see me as, you know, believing in the same values as everyone else. I think there's a serious difference between those two ideas. I'm, I'm not. I personally do not know the answer to the more complex sociological questions here, but I think. One should look at, you know, the 20th century and, like, radical movements, right, especially on the left and on the right. Like, why do people, like, say in Colombia, right, Colombia for, like, you know, between, like, 1960 and, like, the 90s, 2000s, might still be going on, has been, you know, grappling with a, it basically civil war slash just many insurgencies, right, with, like, FARC, right? Like, the question is, why would people want to join these organizations and why would people want to commit violent actions against civilians? I think that's a big question. And, like, Think about it this way. Modern terrorism is, is very new, right? It's a 20th century phenomenon. Terrorism in general, it, like the way we see it today is a very new phenomenon. And like, we want to ask, why is it that it's shown up now? And why do people feel like the enemy is not the enemy soldier? If the enemy is like an enemy civilian, is the civilian the representation of everything that's wrong with the world? Is that what the terrorists are thinking? Like, what is the question? Like, I, okay. I, like, what, is uh, the, what is the answer I, to that question? Okay, I think I've... I think um, I've rather naively made this topic far too large and tried to combat uh, extremism and equate it to topics which are fundamentally separate from each other in their very nature. So let's uh, more localize this discussion and talk about the specific interactions between secularism and religion, especially in the West, uh, where there's a tradition of secular republicanism. That's one thing that's worth mentioning is that, um, you know, I'm a pretty secular guy myself. Uh, and I think that's one thing that's worth pointing out is that we consider secularism in the West to be very, you know, potent and powerful compared to other areas of the world. But I think one the one reality that is created, it happened in France, especially where you see the Catholic Church shrinks massively in the in after the anti-clerical movement. Tons of nuns and priests are deported. But the Catholic Church comes back stronger, more committed, and a far more uh, a far more tight knit unit. It does not oppose the Republic, if only because that's an untenable position. But the reality is that the West's secularization has not been the absence of religion in many ways, but in but it's sort of creation of a new religion. And this is, of course, most obvious in America with the evangelical movement and American Christians overall, where we can see this mass mobilization, especially again returning to the evangelicals of these people who vote in a near in a nearly unified block because of their religion and that's an important note is that we often like to think of the west as very secularized but in many ways that secularization 
is sort of superficial and it reveals but and pulling back the you know the facade pulling back the curtain a little bit we can recognize that many religious groups uh, many much of religion has an extremely direct impact on politics because people affiliate themselves religiously as a direct result of their faith right and i think we we need to move on to a more concrete policy about how what should be the status of religion in modern in our modern secular society well, so here's the thing, right? If we see the thing is about modern society is that they're very democratic, right? People are allowed to, you know, vote how, you know, every person is allowed to vote, right? And the idea is that, hey, we should, we shouldn't be, you know, discriminatory against a, um, you know, like, let's say there's a guy in Alabama and he's pro-life, right? And he's going to vote in his, uh, for a candidate who says, I'm going to, you know, chip away at abortion rights, right? Is there something wrong with that? Like, because we do live in a secular society, yes, but that's mainly referring to the fact that laws aren't supposed to be advocating a certain religion. What about the fact that the average voter is, what about him voting for a candidate that, you know, will say, I'm just going to do something that is in line with my, you know, religion. Like, what about that? Because while, the, while let's say this candidate is not, you know, espousing, like, say, evangelical Christianity, he is advocating for a policy that evangelicals would support. Right, and I think we need to really uh, tackle the question of should should religion be allowed a, a role in our political platforms? And uh, my answer would be no. Um, a religion as part of a... Um, to base a platform specifically around... Uh, if you say, I don't like abortion, that's, that's fine. You're entitled to that opinion. But if you say... I am in. I hate abortion because the Bible says, but the Bible specifically speaks against it. Then you you are purposefully inciting using a religious division to um, incite conflict to boost bolster your political support. And I feel like that's an extraneous influence upon the republic that must be excised. I feel like that's a difference without a distinction there, Jason, because, I mean, we can look at a figure like Trump, who is so obviously unchristian. I mean, he may very well embody the seven deadly sins. And the man, when asked about what his favorite Bible verse was, responded, all of them. So I think the idea that, you know, we must stop anyone from ever using explicit religious justification ignores the fact that as a voting bloc, Christians, and especially, you know, you look at these evangelicals specifically, they're willing to support people who actively violate many of their principles to get their policy proposals done. So it doesn't matter if that politician says, I oppose abortion because I don't like it, or I oppose abortion because my preacher hates it, and my preacher's an evangelical, and evangelicals should vote for me. It's really not as much of a distinction as I think people want to make it out to be, because the reality is that these people aren't dumb. They're going to know if you know, Representative A, you know, Candidate A and Candidate B, and Candidate A espouses positions they don't believe in, and Candidate B espouses positions they do believe in, but for a not directly religious justification, they're still going to choose Candidate B. So the idea that we can, you know, simply excise religion from a republic by, you know, just making you, so you can't explicitly reference it, ignores the fact that Christians as a voting bloc have become far more conscious recently, and they're going to still support the people who they support the policy positions of, regardless of whether there's an explicit justification thereof. I agree. I think that in, if we say... Mohammed, are you coming in? Yeah, coming in. Oh, can you not hear me? Okay, you're back, but you cut out. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, okay, so if we live in a free, uh, supposedly liberal society, right, I think that entitles people to go based off their religious uh, you know, beliefs, religious preferences. I mean, it would be pretty hypocritical if the U.S. said, uh, if there's a law that the U.S. said uh, that is passed that says, okay, you can't vote based off of your, uh, if you're a Christian, you can't vote for against abortion or something like that. I think that passing that kind of law just goes against everything, a liberal, what a liberal society is. And I mean, when I mean liberal, I mean a classical liberal. I don't, I don't really see how, how, how can doing, clamping down on people's personal, what, you know, how can you clamp down on what uh, people's votes, if their votes are based on religion, like, how can you do that? Because that, that just seems to go against everything, um, like, a liberal society stands for. Exactly. Um, okay, so Jason France, asked me to pipe on. in on this one. Uh, what's the question? question is basically the status of secularism in our society, and we specifically discussed uh, evangelical and Christian uh, political movements. On packet, we're specifically saying, Jason said, religion shouldn't have a direct result, i.e. 
uh, a representative shouldn't say, I, I'm opposed to abortion because it's in the Bible. And I, I pushed back and said... wrong with that. What's right, so that's that? what Muhammad said. Muhammad said that, and I said, well, it doesn't really matter, because even if there's not an explicit justification through religious text, if someone supports if someone supports your position that you support because of religion, it doesn't matter why they support it, you'll support them. I mean, um, uh, what were you going to say, Harry H? Uh, you go ahead. Um, well, as a Catholic myself, um, I, don't, I personally don't really see a problem in one basing one's political opinions or stances uh, with Judeo-Christian backing. Um, now, it, it, if, if I were to say uh, I don't like abortion uh, because I don't like killing children and, it, and uh, part, I partly believe that because it says so in the Bible, I wouldn't view that as a unification of church and state. I just view that as someone getting uh, part of their uh, value from from what they from uh, their own religion. I don't see anything wrong with that at all. I mean, I would absolutely I... agree with that. And uh, to provide a a practical critique, we see that this is somewhat. This is, I would say, frankly, more extreme than what France has been trying to do with laicite, the separate the separation of religious and uh, political life, and. We, we've seen how that goes. Lysite obviously has failed. Lysite is in fact force, uh, making people more radical and causing these attacks in some part. And I don't think a policy like this will be able, for one, I don't think you will be able to accomplish a goal. And two, I think could cause some sort of national schism that could cause far more religious violence and completely backfire. Well then, what should be our, what should be our policy on secularism, should be should it be completely excised from political life and political candidates? Or, uh, I think we've moved away from my point of that it should be completely removed from political speech. But how do we confront the issue that religion is a fundamental motivation for many of the horrific attacks that we have seen over the past few years? You're never going to stop that. That's never going away. As long as religion exists and as long as those values exist, people are always going to have prejudices and people are always going to... Uh, be extra motivated to, to act, whether that's acts of kindness and charity or whether that's terrorism. You're never going to get rid of that. That's not ever going to go away. There's no policy that's going to fix that. Well, I would also suggest that clearly, obviously, most Muslims are not terrorists. So clearly, there's something more to it than simply the religion. And I would suggest one of the issues is, in, in specifically in the case of France, would be integration. So I think although... Uh, I want to word my what I'm saying very carefully. Uh, religious beliefs, obviously, I would say, you know, obviously someone who's religious is probably more predisposed to commit an act of religious violence than, say, an atheist. But I don't think that, although obviously it's, we, would, we can't excise someone's religion, we can prevent the other factors that ultimately push someone over the... I mean, right. if you want, if you want to make the argument that we should be helping people in terms of mental health and um, accepting of other groups of people, that's perfectly fine. Uh, I just don't think that uh, some uh, overbearing policy saying uh, X religion uh, must do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, I don't think you're ever gonna be able to do that. Nor uh, do I think that would ever go well with religious folks. Doesn't matter what creed you are. Right, well, but what what is 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 the is the, the solution is to excise the overbearing government policy, the French policy of laicite, which is creating the schism, which is causing a, a crisis of identity for French Muslim, Muslims who already. You know, a large amount of them live in ethnic enclaves, which aren't very great for integration, and who now have to contend with the fact that the state, through its policy of lifestyle, is basically telling them, make a choice. You're either Muslim or you're... I mean, I, I kind of agree with that. Uh, me, personally, I don't think government should have a damn thing to do with any sort of religious service at all. Uh, if the government is going to force... Uh, certain taxes or if it's going to force certain policies onto any any religious group it's never going to go well uh, that whatever group is that's getting affected is always going to feel negatively toward the government uh, because that government is a representation of, of uh, a good amount of people in said country the, the, the group that did vote for those policies are always going to have contempt for the religious group that's getting affected 
it, the government should not ever be in the business of any sort of, uh, let's say, re religious, uh, religious policy or religious dogma. They, they, they should get out of it completely. Right, but what about in certain cases? Like we, I have, have to agree with that on a certain level. I, I mean, like personal freedom is an essential part of anything, and I would argue, I base generally a lot of my political opinions on what I believe will give people the most freedom. And more relevantly, I think it comes down to the issue of there's an idea that there there's a certain idea um, and a certain paternalism that has come, especially with you know sort of Western countries, and the idea that these immigrants from poorer countries. They need to be taught the way, they need to assimilate. And this idea that to be French, you can't be Muslim. And this may have come from a very reasonable reaction to the opposition presented by the Catholic Church. But in many ways, I think we can see that culturally, the we I think the West and these countries like the US and France need to take a step forward and act with a little bit more maturity and recognize that you know the policy you instituted in 1905 to stop the Catholic Church from fomenting a coup against the Republican government is not necessarily a policy that is applicable to Muslims simply existing in your country. And so by that metric, I think any government policy which tells people what they can and cannot believe is not only kind of just wrong, but counterproductive because all it does is further anger that group, which can often lead to an, which can lead to an, escal an escalation of violence on both sides. In the end, the most effective way to sort of rally the populace is to institute, is to institute a, intentionally ineffective policies that only make both sides angrier. And I don't see how any forced secularization of society would work. The reality is that the only way you can secularize society in a stable way is to, to put it simply, let social trends run its course. I mean, these larger countries have less, increasingly less devout populations. We don't know where that trend goes. But you can't force someone to not to believe or not to believe something. That's not an effective government policy. Sure, but what I think I'm really trying to address here is not limits on personal belief. I certainly am against that. I think that anybody should have the right to practice whatever religion, and they have no need to integrate within some vague national quote-unquote culture. But I feel like there is a certain necessity to act upon the um, the uh, um, a certain certain forces calling for religious movements of hatred, in which, um, for example. Uh, we have a large movement of religious xenophobia in the United States when, where uh, certain uh, Christian and certainly uh, uh, non-religiously uh, affiliated groups have pointedly used uh, 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 the very faith of Islam as a political cudgel uh, to give them an enemy. And we have, and in this uh, case of Samuel Pati, explicitly, uh, the leader of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov, has been for the last twenty years essentially claiming that um, that. Um, uh, Muslims should go forth and uh, initiate jihad, and I think that kind of explicitly violent speech, explicitly a force of hatred, can be limited. Well, but I mean, can you tell? You, if... Can you stop Chechnya from saying that? I mean, it's a popular policy to put it bluntly, mm -hmm. and I think that you're going to directly shutter mosques. I mean, that's the question. The reality is that I have to agree with the sentiments of Muhammad. And Andrew here, which is that fundamentally inherent to religion, which is a deeply personal belief and a deeply powerful belief, sometimes it's going to be violent. Like any powerful belief, it comes in many different forms and it can manifest, especially with people with, you know, certain in certain conditions, it can manifest violently. So the solution is not to try and attack religion, but to recognize that while there may never be a world in which there is literally zero terrorist attacks, there is a world in which the situations that lead people down this rabbit hole are, you know, addressed and that we can sort of limit these chances. But I think the reality is that any policy that you advocate for to sort of stop these messages of jihad or these messages that we need to keep the Muslims out or Muslim registry, too much of the population is already invested in this and all you're going to do is ostracize them and they're going to get more radical. I mean, the reality is that you can't, any heavy-handed policy which simply says we need to cut this off at the source is naive in believing that any direct action from a government, especially a government already seen by that group to be tyrannical and evil, is going to do anything but further damage the situation. It's essentially the American Middle Eastern policy decision of, so sure, they think we're evil. Let's invade them. That will stabilize the situation. Yeah, and again, Jason, if you're if what, what you're worried about is uh, actual threats of violence... Um... For example, if um, if a group of Muslims say they want to kill all the Jews and they're going to go invade Israel now, if you want a law against that, then we already kind of do have those laws uh, that you can get. You can be imprisoned for threats of violence already. 
Um, I, if you want to suggest that uh, we could enforce those more effectively and better, uh, I'm perfectly with you on that. I think threats of violence are pretty shitty. But if, well, if, if you're going to suggest that um, we should... Uh, we, we should monitor religious groups for being religious groups because there are some asshats who decide that they want to threaten a different group, then that's simply not going to go over well. Well, specifically for the case of Islam, I would suggest I think the main problem is foreign actors, um, uh, foreign actors outside of U.S. control, which you can't really do a lot about, especially, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the reaction of some, some Arab leaders, people like... Erdogan, who Turkey for some reason is still part of NATO, and I don't think there's anything we can do about that. Their political, their the geopolitical reality is their interests don't align with ours, so it's very expedient for them to say things like this. However, if we draw a parallel with the alt right, I think we can see a solution. Obviously, there's alt right terrorism is a problem, but it's far less visible than Islamic terrorism, and I would and. But they do use similar rhetoric, you know, the whole red, it, the whole idea is that they're being oppressed, you know, that it's us be them mentality. But they get a lot less converse because that isn't what they see. That is not the reality. It's sort of hard for a white person who is very privileged in this country and in the Western world to, to embrace that ideology. A lot harder than for a Muslim who's seeing, who's actually seeing far-right people and even some people closer to the center saying, making sweeping generalizations about Islam. I mean, I think you could, look at, you could look at this discussion as essentially a recognition of a simple reality, that it is often tempting to look at a situation of, um, well, we, there's a problem, how can we solve it? And there's an extremely powerful tool, the tool of government policy, at your disposal. But at the end of the day, I don't think anyone wants open heart surgery performed with a chainsaw. And understanding that the reality is that especially when dealing with something as important to people, as essential to their identity as religion, government policy is counterproductive. And in this, in this vein, government policy can solve problems like extremism by improving conditions, but any direct attack on religion is not is not a good idea and moreover falls into the uh, trap of a sweeping generalization uh that many many sort of xenophobic islamophobic uh groups already fall into by trying to act like one a community is a homogenous group addressing islam or christianity or catholicism or protestantism in a country isn't a, an effective government policy because at the end of the day these are people and there are different sects there are different ideas and the reality is that any attempt to sort of use this chainsaw effectively will only serve to will only create a lot of blood but won't actually produce any productive outcome i mean yeah so what you said there's you know the extreme example of what happened in france a century earlier than the third republic when the you know the first french republic came around and they're very deeply anti-catholic right they changed the calendar uh, you know, priests would get, you know, thrown in jail or even killed sometimes. And the rest, it, this had serious repercussions for, you know, the French state, right? It meant large-scale Catholic uprisings, like in the Vendée region. It meant a coalition of, it, it was partially why, you know, European countries were like, hey, these French guys are a bunch of, you know, atheist secularists, right? They're out to kill all Catholics, right? I think this is, I, I mean, this is an extreme example, I, I would say. But I think it just goes to show how this type of, you know, government policy of, trying to either suppress or advocate some religion, especially when there's when they're trying to suppress like a sizable religious minority, it, it never really goes well. Like I, I don't think there's any real good examples of this going well. Like I mean at the same time as France is doing this, right, the Ottoman Empire, right, was actually, you know, had, you know, Christians, Jews, uh, Muslims, Druze, Alawites, et cetera, all these religious minorities living side by side together. But, you know, the Ottoman state wasn't going around to Christians and saying hey, um, you're not going to be allowed to practice here, you're going to have restrictions on your faith. I think that that type of contrast shows that, you know, government policy, one of the best government policies regarding religion, um, you know, in terms of like oppressing it, it's just not, don't oppress, don't oppress religious minorities and don't, you know, don't try to interfere. I think that's absolutely right, especially when you consider that for the rest of French history. I mean, you can look a hundred years later, the Catholic Church still was a viable threat 
to the French Republic. So we can clearly see that not only was this policy very bloody, and not only did this lead to the uh, ostracization of France from much of the rest of Europe, but it didn't even work in attacking that in, that, in attacking that religion because the vast majority of, Catholic, of France remained Catholic, and moreover, the Catholic Church's influence remained extremely powerful. It was Napoleon who stopped the bleeding with the Concordat of 1805, and the reality is that this policy of harsh repression and total cultural shift did not produce France in and a lot of what we consider to be France's secular nature occurred over centuries, and certainly not as a result of these extremely harsh, repressive policies, which were so ineffective, in fact, that it was indeed the Third Republic's problem, much as it was the First Republic's problem, to deal with an, with an uncooperative church. Okay, I think that we've, I think we've come to an agreement here. Um, I will, uh, I admit that, um, uh, fundamentally, religion is a powerful influence in our world, and any government attempt to suppress it only results in further violence and further sacrifice and further suffering. Um, the best course of action with religion, fundamentally, is just, is no course of action at all. Um, the policy I uh, sort of uh, proposed was that we would limit the certain uh, speech and actions of the uh, uh, various extremist influences and uh, religious authorities, but I recognize, as my comrades have pointed out, that there will we will never be able to stop with any policy whatsoever um, random rogue religious authorities from speaking out and advocating for violence. That is inherent to the nature of religion and perhaps to, inherent to the very nature of human discourse in of itself. So I think what we have concluded here is summarized best by FDR, that poverty is the worst form of violence. Religion is not the root cause here. Poverty is. and Dissatisfaction is. And the best solution we can have for extremism and religiously motivated extremism is to improve the socioeconomic condition, especially in communities where um, Muslims and other religious people of faith have been explicitly ostracized from society, especially under France's rather oppressive uh, philosophy of la cité is to embrace those communities to stop the oppression and stop the um, extreme vision of a secular society that is founded upon a very xenophobic and fundamentally flawed ideal of a nation, a national identity that must inherently be separate from the religions of the people who, of its citizens. I'd also okay. like to do my own summing up. What we see right now is pressure on French Muslims from two sides. On one hand, we have, uh, from the Arab countries, we have the, uh, the odd uh, radical mufti and the Arab leaders who think it's politically expedient to use uh, to promote ra um, extremism. And on the other hand, we have French government and the French society who say, you have to choose. You're either French or Muslim. You can't be both. Now, one of them we can't really change. It's We aren't going to be able to invade the entire Arab world and change all their leaders. That's not going to happen. They're going to continue with their rhetoric. We can't do anything about that. But one we can. And I think what France should do now is reconciliate with its Muslim population, say, we are going to abandon laicite. We think that you can be Muslim, you can be Catholic, you can be Jewish, you can be whatever, and still be yeah. French. It's not a choice. Be French and also be Muslim. If you'll forgive the reach, uh, there was an old episode of The West Wing before 9-11, this is rather relevant, in which one of the policy advisors uh, for the president is being attacked by a certain member of Congress for a policy that is explicitly condemning radical Islam. And when pressed on the subject of alienating Muslims, he says, they'll like us when we win. Well, the truth is that this is not the case. And this kind of Western chauvinism, this idea that we are right, that our way of life is so much better, and that people need to be converted to this is very much the descendant of colonialism and imperialism and the kind of white man's burden ideology that was so destructive in the centuries before. And we must recognize that this is a deeply harmful ideology and one that fundamentally alienates and ostracizes people who are deeply attached to their identity. And so as Harry said, accepting that 
you know, you can be French and a Muslim. And in the United States, recognizing that Islam is not the other, is not inherently dangerous, that we don't need a Muslim registry. The truth is that, as Jason said, addressing extremism is not a matter of attacking religion as a concept. Instead, it's a matter of addressing the critical issues, which these pressure points, these flashpoints, which lead people to use their faith, which is very important to them, as a weapon to mobilize themselves to violent with uh, to to commit acts of violence against others. So the truth is that we as a society must be far more concerned with how we treat religious minorities rather than what is within those religious minorities themselves. Because the truth is that most people are I would like I would argue that most people are good people. They want to do the right thing. They would like to earn an honest living. They don't want to commit crime and they don't want to commit violence. But the truth is that if we try and break a community, force them into a mold that we believe is better for them, even if that is a genuinely altruistic attempt, it is naive at best and deeply harmful at worst. And the truth is that the West has still not shaken off its deeply chauvinistic, condescending perception of non-Westerners as needing fixing, needing to become more secular, needing to become more Western. So the truth is that if we want to address extremism, we must first address our society, which in and of itself encourages extremism. Therefore, we conclude in our discussion that the best policy on religion on part of the government is no policy at all. Thank you for listening to this episode of <clears throat> The Swing Vote. Um, as always, all episodes are available on all major streaming platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and where, wherever you happen to be listening to podcasts at this present moment. Uh, catch our new episodes every Saturday, and as always, Stay in, stay healthy, stay safe.